Well, hey, I'm going to start this morning by reading a story, just a, a quick little story about a guy named Charlie. Uh, so let's read this story. Charlie was first attracted to the teachings of Jesus through a friend who passionately loved God and believed in the church. Over the course of several months and even into years, Charlie's heart began to change and he began to trust Jesus as his Lord and Savior. This new radical lifestyle was incredibly exciting for both Charlie and his friend. Almost immediately, Charlie's family, friends, and co-workers noticed subtle differences in how he acted and how he was. The things that used to be important for Charlie were no longer important. The way he began to spend his time and with who was much different. And although there were times of tension with, his new, with this new reality, he loved his family, his friends, and his co-workers well. Charlie was becoming a better person. He found a local church where he was comfortable and began to seek new relationships within that community. His appetite to read and study the scripture were insatiable. He sought different learning opportunities through the church and tried earnestly to replace worldly things with Christian things. Charlie was one of the, uh, was one of the first phone calls from the staff of the church when they were ever in a bind or if a friend needed help. That was who Charlie was. Yet over time, the freshness of Jesus began to wear off. Life got incredibly busy for Charlie. With his job, he went back to school, he got married. Scriptural study and times of prayer often took a back seat to the needs that surrounded him or just the very demands of his life. He maintained his volunteer position for Sundays at church and continued to lead his men's accountability group on Thursday mornings. He felt like he had a good community of people who truly cared for him. However, he struggled to be transparent in that community for fear that people may not fully understand him, for fear that he may expose too much of his life. Life wasn't necessarily bad for Charlie, though, but something was missing. Something was not right. He lived much of his life wondering where he had gone wrong, and why the feeling of closeness with God and the desire to be with him had faded so much. At times, and usually associated with a certain spiritual service or event, there would be a resurgence of that closeness with God. But those feelings soon faded as the grind of life continued. Charlie was a person of integrity. He never had a moral failure, was respected around the workplace, he coached his kids' sports. He took out loans only to pay for his house and his car. And he loved his wife well. Twenty years later, Charlie is still a part of the church that he first joined. Many around him would point to him as the best Christian they know. But for most of the 20 years, he's felt like something was missing. Like there's something more to this life that he hasn't been able to regain. How many of you can identify with parts of Charlie's story? How many of you have felt that feeling that something is missing before? I know I have. There have been long seasons where I felt that. That kind of undercurrent within just the very, our, our gut, where you just think, man, am I missing the boat right now? Something feels like it's missing. Something feels not right. You see, on the surface, Charlie and his life looks really great. 
But in reality, Charlie has a persistence problem. I think the scripture that we're going to look at this morning, Matthew 7, 7 through 11, speaks to the idea of persistence. So Matthew 7, 7 through 11 reads this way. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened for you. For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds, and to him who knocks, it will be opened. Or what man is there among you who, when his son asks for a loaf, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will he not, or he will not give him a snake, will he? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give what is good to those who ask him? I am convinced that persistence has to be the foundation of discipleship. You see, we read these verses, and people initially, and this was my first reaction, say, well, this passage really is about prayer. And I would say, well, you're absolutely right, but I think you're absolutely wrong at the same time. Because there's a broader message that I believe comes out of this scripture. Absolutely, it's about prayer. Jesus is speaking to the idea of prayer here. But I think even more than that, he's speaking to the idea that the disciple needs to be persistent. That persistence needs to be a foundation for discipleship. You see, when we read the text in English, we miss the nuance in the original language, in the words ask, seek, and knock. These three words, they're imperatives that are emphatic, and they're spoken in the present tense. So actually, it would be better read if we read it, keep on asking, keep on seeking, keep on knocking. If you read it that way, I think this idea of persistence really begins to stand out. The scripture speaks to persistence in several different ways. Paul in 1 Corinthians 9, this famous verse that we all know, it says, Do you not know that those who run all or do you not know those who run in a race all run, but only one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may win. Everyone competes in the games, exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath but we an imperishable. Therefore, I run in such a way as not without aim. I box in such a way as not beating the air. But I discipline my body and make it my slave, so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified. Paul uses the metaphor of sport to speak to the need of the persistence it takes to follow Jesus in his kingdom. In 1 Timothy, Paul exhorts Timothy to persevere in the life of Christ so that he may see the fruition of his salvation. Jesus urges his disciples to be persistent in their watching and in their prayer when they're in the garden. He even, Jesus even tells this parable in Luke 18 of a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And this widow comes to the judge over and over and over asking for justice from her adversary. And even though this judge, who neither feared God nor respected man, he gave her justice because of her persistence. Essentially saying, man, you're just, you're bugging me. You're here over and over and over. And finally, just to get you out of here, because you're so persistent, I'm going to give you what you want. You see, if the unrighteous judge 
grants her her request, will not God respond to those in the same way who continually come to him, who are persistent in their discipleship? Jesus teaches us to keep on asking, to keep on seeking, to keep on knocking. And he uses this parable, the parable of the persistent widow. He uses the scripture in Matthew. We can see the, testif- uh, the testimony throughout the scripture about this idea of persistence. All these things speak to the idea that it is critical. Discipleship is about persistence. Persistence is the foundation upon which discipleship is built. And I believe this passage, Matthew 7, speaks to three ways that that should happen. We're going to look at those three ways. The first being ask. Keep on asking. This is the idea of persistence in prayer. Let me start this way. Do you believe that we are a prayerful people? Think about it for a moment. As a church, even just beyond new community, are we a prayerful people? Or could it be argued that maybe we have lost a little bit of the urgency in our prayer? Prayer is the fundamental starting point for our relationship with God. It is the fundamental starting point for discipleship. You cannot have relationship with God without prayer. Willard, speaking to this idea of asking, says this, Asking is indeed the great law of the spiritual world through which things are accomplished in cooperation with God. Now, this morning, we're not going to get into all the nuances of prayer. We could do an entire series about the who and the what and the where and the when and the why of prayer, and it would be a beautiful thing, and we do that in format, and we should be doing that in group. We'll even speak to that later on as we are studying Matthew. We'll, We'll get into prayer a little bit more this morning. The intention is not to get into all the nuances because I really think the passage doesn't get into that. The passage just says, keep on asking, keep on praying. It doesn't tell us how or when or why. It just says, this is what you need to do. Keep on praying. Brother Lawrence, uh, who if you have not, if you don't know of Brother Lawrence, uh, there's this little book about him, and it's, um, it's a phenomenal read. It's called Practicing the Presence of God. It is, it's a beautiful book. His goal in life was to try to spend 24 hours with God in prayer, essentially to have true communion with God. And and he says this, There is not in the world a kind of life more sweet and delightful than that of a continual conversation with God. There is not in the world a kind of life more sweet and delightful than that of a continual conversation with God. That's a beautiful thing to think about. You see, if prayer is relegated to the thing that we do before meals and the thing that we do at the end of our group times, if it becomes an afterthought around our day, then we have missed the point. And I think when that becomes our reality, I think we cease to become true disciples. This uh, last Friday, I had a, a really incredible opportunity. I'm taking a class right now, a comparative world religions class, and one of the assignments that I have to do was to go and witness a religious service uh, from a a different faith than my own. And so I went at 12.30 on Friday to the mosque, the Spokane Islamic Center, and sat in the back and um, witnessed this incredibly beautiful prayer service that the imam put on. And uh, there was, um, in in this environment, men and women are separated, and so I was obviously with the guys, and and, uh, women were doing, having a prayer service at the same time. 
um, there was about 150-ish guys there uh, for this prayer service. And it was, I was amazed. I was shocked. Friday afternoon, in the middle of the day, all these guys just roll in, and um, they're kneeling together, and they're um, praying kind of in a, a rhythmic, um, almost, it's, it's prayer, but it's song-like. I mean, it, it was just this beautiful thing to watch, these men who are um, devout in their faith, who are there and, and incredibly devout, devout enough to give up a Friday afternoon at 1230 to come and pray weekly. They do that five times a day. We had Harp and Bowl here on Wednesday. We had 20 people show up. Now, I didn't show up. <laughs> so that's not, I'm not putting that on you guys saying, hey, get to this prayer service, because I wasn't here. Two years ago, we did a 16-hour or 12-hour, I can't remember, it was a length of time, though, day of prayer where the church was open on a good Friday. And we just said, hey, all who want to come in at any point, come in for... Five minutes, come in for six hours. We'll be here. And, and it was staffed all day long, and we were here. We had five people show up over the course of the day. Now, again, I'm not throwing that out there to say, hey, you, you guys should be more prayerful. Honestly, truth be told, if I wasn't on staff here, if I wasn't in charge of that day, I may not have shown up. I think there's an issue in our community, not just new community, but a, a, around the American church. We are not a prayerful people. We do not keep on asking. It is not a rhythm of our lives. Prayer is a total life activity. 1 Thessalonians 5, 16-18 says this, Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and everything give thanks, for this is God's will for you in Jesus Christ. You see, prayer is not simply a privilege that we can choose to take part in, nor is it something that we just need to check off our list. Just showing up to one harp and bowl doesn't mean that you're a prayerful person. It is the cause and the effect of true discipleship. It should seep into everything that we do. It should become the lens through which we see our world, is in that prayerful conversation with God. It doesn't take a special location. It doesn't take a certain time of day. Those things are okay and those things are great. But really what it does take is a humble persistence to transform our hearts and our minds to becoming prayerful in all that we do. And I think the scripture speaks to that. The second idea is movement. Keep on seeking. This is the persistence in movement. How many people have lost something and they've gone crazy trying to find it? People been there before? It's your keys, it's your whatever. Grace, my wife, uh, I'll tell two stories. My wife, um, we've been looking for our engagement pictures for, we've been married for eight years, nine years now, so we've been looking for our engagement pictures for roughly ten years. <laughs> I'm pretty convinced that we've thrown them away. We've moved twice since then. We still haven't come, up, come upon them. My wife has gone crazy trying to find our engagement pictures. I lost my favorite sweatshirt five years ago. I was on an intramural football team in college. Our name was the Beastmasters. My nickname was Snake Pit, and I had it on the back of my sweatshirt. We had uh, three years we were on this football team, and it started with a, two T-shirts. Each year was a T-shirt, and then this was the third annual, our senior year. 
It was the, the, the greatest sweatshirt I have ever owned. <laughs> I haven't had it for five years, and yet I would say, and this is not an exaggeration, weekly, I think about where could that sweatshirt be? <laughs> I, was just at my, uh, I was just at Grace's folks' house this weekend, and I, I thought to myself, well, maybe I came here and took it off, and it's hanging in their closet, and I looked through their closet. <laughs> thinking that maybe just somehow the, my Beastmaster's sweatshirt <laughs> made its way there. And people, when you're looking for something, they say, oh, well, just don't think about it, and it will turn up. And is there anything more frustrating than that <laughs> comment right there? <laughs> just don't think about it. True seeking consumes. It should consume your entire being. It's the woman tearing apart her house to find the last coin in the collection. It's the shepherd leaving the 99 to find the one. It's me still hoping to find my sweatshirt, my $28 sweatshirt after five years. True seeking should consume. Throughout Scripture, there is an emphasis placed on seeking there's an emphasis placed on movement. This is one of those instances. I think Jesus instructs us to keep on seeking because seeking implies movement. And the Christian faith demands movement. If we're really desiring to follow Jesus and call ourselves Christians, then we need to be moving. We cannot be sitting still in our living rooms, waiting for something to happen. The Christian life demands movement. And I believe that it's out of our asking or our prayer that that seeking or that movement flows. And so out of prayer, movement begins. Because prayer without movement just becomes self-centered navel-gazing. But movement without prayer is nothing more than a waste of time. When prayer and movement go hand in hand, this is when we begin to really see the reality of the kingdom in our lives and in the world around us. In prayer, we hear God, and in movement, we begin to see God. I think movement is interesting. We actually did an entire series on movement uh, like a year and a half ago when we studied through the book of Philippians the idea of movement. You can see the arrows are still on the wall <laughs> regarding that idea of movement. But I, I, I love that series because that really was, the, the entire emphasis was how are we moving in our relationship with the Lord? How are we moving towards the gospel? How are we actually moving the gospel to the community around us? You see, I think movement is interesting though because we too often worry so much about are we moving in the right direction that we paralyze ourselves. We're so worried about, well, is this even the, the, the right direction that we just end up saying, well, I'm just not going to move then. I'm not going to move until I hear the exact call of God. What if I go the wrong way? What if I don't hear that call really, really clearly? What if I'm not theologically ready to actually move? What if I don't say the right things? What if my friend doesn't respond? What if, what if, what if, what if? And so we end up finding ourselves paralyzed, not moving at all. 
Let me ask this question, though. It's another what-if question. What if God would rather us move in the wrong direction than not move at all? What if movement really was the emphasis? And so God would say, hey, I just want you to move. And even if it's, even if it's in the wrong direction, that's okay. I will redirect you. But you at least have to move. What if we believed our call was to move and then we actually trusted that God would change our direction as need be? And that was the kind of people that we became. Because again, I'm convinced if we are not moving, we will not see God. That third one is knocking. And I think this is the persistence of faith. You see, when we knock, we place our faith in the person on the other side of the door that somebody's going to come and answer that door. And the scripture asks us to keep on knocking, to keep on having faith. Kayla talked about the, uh, a childlike faith, which is so great because it goes with this morning. I've never understood the idea of faith like a child until I had children. My boys trust me implicitly with the safety of their life. And it shows as there are a couple of things I like to do. One is called the swing. And so I'll grab, uh, I'll grab our kids by the ankle in the hand and the ankle in the hand. And their head is on the ground. Their head is towards me. And I swing them between my legs. And then I pop them up onto my shoulders. And they love it. They think it's the most hilarious thing in the world. The other one is the 360 move. And so I will throw them up in the air and turn their bodies so they do a spin in the air and then I will catch them, almost like ice dancing. <laughs> they, they love these things. And immediately I put them on the ground and they say, mo, 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 they want more of it. We can do it all day long. They have complete faith that I will catch them. There's not a question in their mind that dad will be there, catch them, that they'll be safe. That is not a reasonable thing to do with a human being. <laughs> and I know that, and there's a CPS guy in the back that's probably beginning to ask some questions. It is not reasonable for a human being to be spun in the air and caught by another human being and do a 360. That's just not a reasonable thing. But our kids love it. My boys absolutely love it. I mean, could you imagine having somebody that's four times bigger than you throw you up in the air? I, there's, I have too much responsibility to put my life in danger like that. Martin Luther says this, and I apologize for the language, but I think it's fitting for this morning. Martin Luther says, Reason is a whore, the greatest enemy that faith has. You see, what we do, the life that we choose to live as a disciple of Jesus Christ is not a reasonable lifestyle from the world's perspective. When we begin to talk about dying to self, when we say things like sacrificially giving, when we talk about loving our enemies, these are not reasonable statements from a world's perspective. This stuff doesn't make sense if you come at it any other direction than from a Christian worldview. These are not normal things. They're not reasonable. But this is the very life that we are called to live as a disciple of Jesus Christ. And I believe that it's only by persistent faith that we can trust that they are right and they are good. If prayer initiates the action, then faith 
undergirds both of them. If prayer initiates movement, then I believe that faith undergirds them both. If it's not out of faith that we are operating our very lives, if it's not faith that we are continually holding on to, then we've got to ask the question, what am I doing in this building right now? The passage ends with this beautiful promise. After we're called to keep on asking, keep on seeking, keep on knocking, to continue in our prayer and our movement and in our faith, the scripture ends this way. What man is there among you who, when his son asks for a loaf, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, he will not give him a snake, will he? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give what is good to those who ask him? Plain and simple, the scripture promises that those who continually ask will receive, those who continually seek will find, and those who continually knock, it will be opened. God is a good God. He gives good gifts to those who are faithful. And I think maybe one of the main hurdles for us to overcome is actually believing that he gives good gifts. But this promise in scripture is pretty clear. Now, I know that there is tension in these verses. You might be saying, yeah, but I've been asking for years for my cancer's friend, or for my, <laughs> my cancer's friend, my friend's cancer to be cured. Why has God not responded? Why is my friend not healed? I think there are two responses from, from my perspective on this. The first is this. God's ways are not our ways. He is far more mysterious than our systematic theology books and our doctrinal statements would like to believe. God is mysterious, and his ways are not our ways. When I was 10 years old, this is honestly one of the first times that I, I truly remember, and, and I may have been 9 or 10, somewhere in there, I truly remember uh, this was like my first heartfelt time of prayer. I was in my room, and I was, I was laying in my bed, my dream at this point was to own a set of golf clubs. And I had worked all summer long to save up money. <clears throat> I was about $100 short from this, this set of golf clubs that I, I dreamed of having. And I remember laying in my bed, and we've all done this. We've all said this prayer. Many of us have probably said this prayer within the last week. I said, God, if you could give me these golf clubs, I would forever be devoted to you and you alone. I will <laughs> never ask for anything again if I could just get these golf clubs. Because at that point, from my perspective, my life would have kind of reached its pinnacle <laughs> if I could have these golf clubs. About 10 days later, I, was, uh, I went on a fishing trip with my dad. We were in eastern Montana, beautiful eastern Montana, fishing some trout rivers there. This is something I, I've spoken about this before. This was a, a deal that my dad and I did every summer. It was the, the week that I looked to or looked forward to more than any other week in the year, just dad and, and, and son time. We, uh, we got off the river real late one night. It was like um, probably 10 o'clock or something like that, and we were trying to find any, any restaurant that would have some food. We ended up eating in a casino this like weird kind of truck stop, casino, deli kind of place, only in eastern Montana. Uh, and, and so we ate this, this gross meal and came out of, um, 
came out of the casino, trying to go back to bed. We were going to get back on the river early in the morning. And as I'm walking out, lo and behold, there is this, this clumped up wad of money on the ground. And but nobody was around, and we were fishing with another, uh, a good friend of, of the family, and his name was John, and John, and I kind of picked it up, and I was holding it, and I was like, should I take it back in, or what do I, I've never found money before, and John said, well, no, put that in your pocket, let's get in the car. <laughs> <laughs> so, put it in the pocket, we got in the car, $93. I found 93 bucks, I got home, and within about four days of the trip, I had those new golf clubs. God had answered my prayer. <laughs> the tension in that, though, is you see situations like that where I could point and say, man, God is faithful. He does give good gifts. But then I've got a great friend named Titus. He's been in our small group for about a year, a little, little over a year now, and he's had uh, this issue with his back for over a year, and we've laid hands on him, and as a church, we've prayed for him, and it's not getting healed. And it's debilitating to him. And he's in his early 20s, and he shouldn't be struggling with this. But I don't see God moving in that situation. Now, I do see God moving in the way that he has matured Titus. Titus is a much different man today than he was a year ago. And a lot of that is because of the way that God has moved in this situation but his back still hurts every morning. It hurts so much so that when he comes to our house, he can't hold our youngest kid. 20 pounds, 22 pounds, whatever he is. Because it's too heavy in the front of his body and his back can't support it. And that breaks my heart. He gives me golf clubs when I'm 10, and yet he doesn't heal Titus's back. God is mysterious. That's the first response I have to the tension in this passage. His ways are not our ways, and we just need to trust that his ways are good. And Titus is so mature that if he stood up here today, he would say, hey, if this whole back thing is just to bring me closer to the Lord, then I'll take it. Because that's the kind of guy Titus is. For me, that's harder to swallow, though. A family who loses their infant to complications at birth. A young mother who's diagnosed with cancer. A man with great integrity who loses his business. These things are not fair. But they're stories that are happening around us. We all could identify those people. The reality is, is God's ways are not our ways. And we have to just trust that his ways are good. The scripture says he gives good gifts. Which brings us to the second one. God will give what is good to those who ask. It does not say God will give what people want if they ask for it. It begs the question, do we always know what is good for us? If I allowed my son to dictate what he ate, and only he could dictate that, he would eat candy corn all day long. <laughs> it is, his favorite food is candy corn right now. And in, in his immaturity, he would sit down and just eat candy corn, not knowing that that is not good for him. And so as a father, my wife, as a mother, we have to step in and say, you can only have one piece of candy corn. You have to eat a, a well, a, a balanced meal. I'm convinced that we're not all that different 
than my three-year-old kid. That sometimes we don't always know what's good for us. We think that we do, and we pray for the things that we think that we do, but we're not always completely sure. God will give good things to those who ask, to those who are persistent. They may may not be the things that we think that we need, but they are the things that will bring about God's purposes in our lives and in the world around us. Discipleship is about many different things, but underneath it all, I think it has to be about persistence. For if it's not about persistence, I think we find ourselves in Charlie's shoes, being recognized as maybe the best Christian around us but still feeling that feeling of something is not right, something is missing. When we lose our urgency, when we lose that persistence, that's where we find ourselves. We go wrong because we lose our sense of persistence. We stop asking, we stop seeking, we stop knocking. We begin to just rest on the experiences that we've had in the past. We begin to just look towards that next religious service that next retreat, that next small group time, hoping that that will just be enough to carry us through to the next one. Persistence in our discipleship is absolutely critical. And I think it keeps us from living out Charlie's story. A.W. Tozer, and I'll end with this, in his famous work, The Pursuit of God, titles his first chapter, Following Hard After God. I love that mental image. Following hard after God. After God. I believe that's what Matthew 7 is inviting us into. It's saying, keep on asking, for God is a God that desires communion, and he wants to answer. Keep on seeking, for God will be found when we move toward his kingdom. Keep on seeking, because God will be found when we move. He will meet us there. And keep on knocking for true faith, is what saves. Tozer ends the chapter with this beautiful prayer, and we're going to end this way. Let's stand. Let's pray this prayer, and then the band will come back up, and we'll end with one last song. And here's what I'm going to have you do. I just want you to close your eyes, and I'm going to pray this for us this morning. Oh God, I have tasted thy goodness, and it has both satisfied me And made me more thirsty. I am painfully conscious of my need of further grace. I am ashamed of my lack of desire. O God, the triune God, I want to want thee. I long to be filled with longing. I thirst to be made more thirsty still. Show me thy glory, I pray thee so that I may know thee indeed. Begin in mercy a new work of love within me. Say to my soul, rise up in love, my fair one, and come away. Then give me grace to rise and follow. I have wandered so long. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.